Sorry guys, I'm always the one that does, has the flubs. My brain just farts on me sometimes. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> you know that's going in the podcast. <laughs> Welcome to Kidney Essentials. This is a podcast for medical students, residents, and all nephrocurious practitioners at the University of Colorado and beyond. We're here to make nephrology more accessible one podcast at a time. And don't forget sexy as well. That's right. So we have a special guest with us today, one of our talented second year internal medicine residents at the University of Colorado. He also is sporting a very distinguished mustache today. Jake, please introduce yourself. Thanks for the kind of welcome, Dr. Ambrusso. My name is Jake Hershey. I'm one of the internal medicine residents here at the University of Colorado. No conflicts of interest. And sadly, I only mooch off my girlfriend's Twitter handle, so I don't even have one of my own yet. Mm. But she mostly follows nephrology as a result of this. Well, talk to Judy about Twitter handles. (laughs) (laughs) Do not talk to me about Twitter handles. I think I have the least used Twitter handle in the entire Twitterverse, possibly. Well, at least you have one. Anyways, um, we are missing Sarah today as she is out and about enjoying the end of summer. She's also taking her son up to Canada for school. So we miss her, but we are ready to move about with, with Jake. So Judy, why don't you also say hello? So my name is Judy Blaine. I'm a professor at the University of Colorado in the Nephrology Division. I have no conflicts of interest, and my Twitter handle is at JudyBlaine2. And I am your host for tonight, Sophia Ambruso. I am on faculty at the University of Colorado and a clinical nephrologist at the Denver VA, and my Twitter handle is Sophia at Sophia underscore kidney, and I have no conflicts of interest. Judy, how about our disclaimer? So the usual uh, disclaimer, this podcast is for educational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the hosts, and this podcast should not be used as medical advice or for any treatment purposes. All right, the boring stuff is gone. Let's move on to our podcast. So this is our last podcast on diabetes to round it all out. Today, we're going to touch a little bit more on diagnosis, indications for biopsy, and some of the nuances of treatment. So let's go back to our case for a mer- as a reminder. You're consulted on a 45-year-old woman with poorly controlled type 1 diabetes, complicated by diabetic neuropathy, hypertension, with worsening proteinuria and GFR. The patient has 800 milligrams per gram of albuminuria, 1,600 milligrams per gram of proteinuria, and bland urinary dipstick. Upon meeting the patient, she reports recently being diagnosed with diabetic retinopathy. So from our previous two to three podcasts, we established that this patient has a clinical diagnosis of diabetic nephropathy. Judy, what is the significance of her diabetic retinopathy diagnosis? So we know from studies of many patients that diabetic retinopathy is present in almost 100% of patients with type 1 diabetes who also have diabetic nephropathy. And in fact, the presence of diabetic retinopathy is part of the criteria that we use for clinical diagnosis of diabetic nephropathy in patients with type 1 diabetes. However, the same is definitely not true for type 2 diabetes, where only about 50 to 60% of patients with diabetic nephropathy actually also have diabetic retinopathy. Yeah, and I think it's sort of the, it, it also is, is the same. Patients with diabetic retinopathy, about 100% have diabetic nephropathy. 
um, and type 1 diabetics, and then patients who are type 2 diabetics, about 50% with diabetic retinopathy also have diabetic nephropathy. So they sort of are interchangeable. Is that right? That is correct. Okay. So that brings me to my next question, Jake. What are the clinical diagnostic criteria for diabetic nephropathy? Yeah, this was interesting to me because I feel like we throw this term around a lot, but I did not know until I had this in front of me. So the first criteria is having a duration of disease. So for diabetics, for type 1 diabetics, it has to be over 10 years. And then for type 2 diabetics, it can be for any duration because largely we don't know how long they've had type 2 diabetes. The second criteria is the presence of diabetic retinopathy if you have type 1 diabetes, similar to what Judy just talked about. And then the third criteria is previous moderate albuminuria, which is defined as a albumin creatinine ratio of 30 mg per gram up to 300 mg per gram. The fourth criteria is no macroscopic hematuria, RBC casts, or dysmorphic RBCs. And what's interesting about this is microscopic hematuria can occur in up to 10 to 15% of patients with diabetic nephropathy. Dysmorphic RBCs can also occur, but are much rarer and may suggest a different diagnosis. And then the final criteria is enlarged kidneys on ultrasound. Yeah, and I just want to highlight when you brought up the previous moderate albuminuria, it's, it's definitely sort of a progression. So by and large, you know, if a patient presents with nephrotic range, that's one thing, but you do see a progression from moderate to more severe at times, but not necessarily always, but that is a part of our quote-unquote diagnostic criteria. So Judy, Jake said that hematuria can occur in 10 to 15% of patients with diabetic nephropathy. How can that be? So you obviously get glomerular injury with diabetic nephropathy, and sometimes what you you actually damage the glomerular filtration barrier, and you can get an inflammatory cascade, which can be promoted by the advanced Caucasian end products that occur due to the high blood sugars in, that are seen with diabetes. And this can lead to damage to the endothelial cells and damage the podocytes. And actually, you can have leakage of red blood cells from the glomerular capillaries into the ultrafiltrate, which will eventually become the urine. And that's how you can get microscopic hematuria. Nice. You guys, Judy just dropped the mic there. You know that she did that ad lib. Some of this is scripted. Judy doesn't script. That was pretty sweet. Sometimes I need a script. <laughs> <laughs> but not when it comes to talking about the glomerular filtration barrier, which is one of my favorite things to talk about. Okay. I do want to just bring up that if we do see hematuria, we oftentimes won't just chalk it up to diabetic nephropathy, but we also don't jump to that this is a glomerulonephritis when we see that. And sorry, Sophie, I'd just like to point out one thing, which I think is kind of yes. important. So if you see microscopic hematuria in any individual over a certain age, particularly a man over a certain age, you really want to think about also sending the urologist for an investigation of the upper urinary tract because microscopic hematuria can come from many other places other than just the glomerulus. Thank you. Anything else, Jake, before we move on? No, the only thing I have to add is there's a great review article that the New England Journal just published on hematuria, which is a great review for probably anyone. Yeah, we probably need to take another look at it too. Yeah. Okay. All right. So to come full circle, remember that we spent a large portion of last of the last podcast on hyperfiltration, 
as it being an early feature of diabetic nephropathy, and it typically manifests as large kidneys. So this is a part of our diagnostic criteria of diabetic nephropathy. Just wanted to bring that back there. As a caveat, though, in more advanced cases of diabetic kidney disease, kidneys may be small and scarred like we see in a lot of our other patients with chronic kidney disease. So Judy, is there any indication to biopsy this patient? No, um, I would not biopsy her because this is a really pretty straightforward case. She's got progressive albuminuria. She has chronic kidney disease. She already has diabetic retinopathy. And there are no sort of red flag features that I can see that would make me suspect an alternate diagnosis that we could only pick up by doing a kidney biopsy. Yeah. All right. Jake. You get the tough one. For our listeners, would you summarize the indications for kidney biopsy in a patient with diabetes and kidney dysfunction? Yeah. So interestingly, these are pretty much the exact opposite of the criteria that I had just mentioned for diabetes and um, diabetic nephropathy. So the first indication is a duration of disease for type 1 diabetes is under 10 years unless diabetic retinopathy is present. If another indication is if you have a type 1 diabetic without any retinopathy at all. For type 2, that's like less consistent because the pattern, like we discussed earlier, is not as linear. The third indication is for nephrotic range proteinuria without progression through that moderate albuminuria stage that Sophia talked about before. And then the fourth indication is for macroscopic hematuria. And the fifth and final criteria for a biopsy is RBC casts or dysmorphic RBCs. Awesome. Let's move on to treatment because I think that this is really where the nitty gritty is and and what we want to do with our patients. We've diagnosed this person. And then what are our goals of diet kidney disease management and how would you treat this patient specifically? So the number one goal with treating diabetic kidney disease is to really prevent progression of the kidney disease because the at this point in the US, the majority of patients who end up on, on dialysis, the majority of patients with end-stage renal disease are those who have had uh, diabetic nephropathy. And so really our goal is to try to prevent patients from ever progressing to that point. And we can break these down into sort of smaller sub-goals. One is normalization of glomerular hemodynamics, which then prevents the hyperfiltration and further damage to the glomerulus. Another one is to regress completely or slow progression of albuminuria because there have been multiple studies that show that lowering albuminuria is significantly correlated with extending kidney life in patients with diabetes. And again, all of these are aimed at really slowing or halting the progression of diabetic kidney disease. And, you know, sometimes we get really focused just on the kidney But before we get too focused on the kidney, we want to think a little bit more holistically about the patient in terms of other things that we can do. So we also want to address modifiable risk factors for diabetic kidney disease progression. We really want our patients to have good glycemic control, ideally an A1C goal of less than 7%, if they can achieve that without too much hypoglycemia. We definitely want improved blood pressure control, because again, multiple studies have shown that this slows the rate of kidney disease progression. So our target for blood pressure is less than a systolic of less than 130 and a diastolic of less than 80. We would like other lifestyle changes such as smoking cessation and weight loss. And then one of the mainstays of treatment is 
RAS inhibition, so suppressing the renin-angiotensin system using ACE inhibitors or ARBs. And then our new favorite medication which class, which is the SGLT2 inhibitors, which we'll discuss in more detail in a little bit. Nice. So basically, it's glycemic control, blood pressure control, smoking cessation, weight loss, RAS inhibition, right? Yeah. And some of these things are easier to achieve than other, others of them. But, but that's basically, if you really want to do it right, you kind of have to aim for all of those. Right. So Jake, we spent a lot of time on this on our last, last podcast, but I think it's important to emphasize. So just briefly review how the rest, how rest inhibition is helpful in treating diabetic nephropathy. Yeah. So we have to kind of step back and go to our first year med school days with our, our RAS system, but RAS inhibition works uh, by reducing the afferent arteriolar vasodilation that you see and also reducing the efferent vasoconstriction. And when you get those kind of processes in tandem, you decrease intraglomerular pressures and subsequently reduce hyperfiltration, which gives us those end goals of preventing albuminuria, progression of albuminuria, progression of diabetic kidney disease, and finally, preventing development of end-stage kidney disease in those DKD patients. Nice. So it sounds like RAS inhibition is important and it needs to be continued at all costs. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. Bringing it back to our case, our patient's primary care doc calls you and says that she started this patient on lisinopril or the EGFR has declined and the serum potassium is now 5.1. How do you counsel this your doctor? Yeah, I think that we have this fear of seeing the EGFR go up on RAS inhibition, but in general, we actually tend to tolerate a drop in GFR as long as it's not more than 30 to 35%, and that it should stabilize within the first two to four months of drug initiation or of titration. And then with regards to actual GFR cutoffs, we tend to go with aggressive RAS inhibition as long as the GFR is over 20 mils per minute. Nice. Judy, hyperkalemia? For hyperkalemia, we really try to continue RAS inhibition for as long as possible while also modifying dietary potassium intake, which unfortunately is difficult to do because almost any food that tastes good is high in potassium. If patients cannot lower their potassium intake through dietary means enough, then we actually have some great new tools that can bind potassium in the gut and we can and use the gut to excrete potassium. Two of these being sodium zirconium cyclosilicate, or localma, or paterma, also known as Valtessa. And both of these can be used and are pretty effective at lowering potassium and allow, allowing us to continue using an ACE or an ARB. Okay, so let's talk about our SGLT2 inhibitors. What is the mechanism of action of these, and how are they renal protective? So basically, SGLT2 stands for sodium glucose co-transporter, um, and these inhibitors simply block the sodium glucose co-transporter in the proximal tubule. So if you block sodium uptake from the proximal tubule lumen, you basically end up with more salt in the lumen. This leads to robust natriuresis or increase in sodium and water in the urine. So if you pee out more salt and water, you end up reducing intravascular volume. And this in turn leads to a decrease in blood pressure. In addition, um, because you're now blocking sodium uptake in the proximal tubule, 
you end up delivering more sodium to the distal kidney and to the macula densa. This in turn downregulates tubular glomerular feedback and mass activity, which means that you have a decrease in afferent arterial vasodilation, i.e. there is now less blood being delivered to the glomerulus, which uh, results in a decrease in intraglomerular pressure and preservation of glomerular hemodynamics. As you you may recall from what we've discussed earlier in the podcast, one of the earliest features of diabetic nephropathy is glomerular hypofiltration, which is very damaging to, to the cells within the glomerulus, and so we'd like to try to reduce those intraglomerular pressures. Nice. That was a mouthful. But these SGLT2 inhibitors are worth it, I think. Oh, they're definitely worth it. So, Jake, we've heard quite a bit about SGLT2 inhibitors, but what is this big deal about these guys anyhow? I don't think it comes as a shock to anyone if you're in if you're in medicine at all now, you know everything about SGLT2 and the wonder that they are. So kind of just going back to what Judy was talking about. So what SGLT2 inhibitors do is they reduce this degree of albuminuria that we see and also decrease the risk of diabetic disease progression. And that's independent actually of glycemic effects, which is pretty interesting. They also lower the risk of end-stage kidney development or kidney-associated deaths. And that's independent of baseline albumin secretion or RAS inhibition. And then finally, one of the pleasant side effects of SGLT2 inhibition is that they reduce the rate of major cardiovascular events, hospitalizations, and death in individuals with atherosclerotic disease, regardless of whether or not they have diabetic kidney disease. Literally, everybody at least should be on an SGLT2 inhibitor, at least so far. Put it in the water. Yeah, that's what we joke about, is putting, making a combination <laughs> RAS inhibition SGLT2 inhibitor pill and just sticking it in the water. Yeah. Okay, so Judy, your patient is now asking about potential side effects, and how are you going to the counselor? So this is an important discussion to have because these are new medications. Basically, anyone that you put on an SGLT2 inhibitor is more prone to volume de- depletion for two reasons. First of all, as we just discussed, they're going to be peeing out more salt and water. But second of all, since they also block uh, glucose uptake by the proximal tubule, they're also going to be peeing out more sugar. So they have more sugar in their urine that can act as an osmotic agent. And then they are also more prone to urogenital infections and urinary tract infections in general because of the increased sugar in the urine, as well as vulvovaginal candidiasis. There's been a reported increase of two to fourfold of that condition. Cornea is gangrene, which fortunately is rare, and something called euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis, which definitely requires appropriate dietary counseling prior to starting these agents. And so we definitely want patients to keep their blood sugar under good control and also to try to avoid and to try to eat on a regular basis. In the very early trials, there also appeared to be an increased risk of lower limb amputations associated with, the, with these SGLT2 inhibitors, particularly canagliflozin, but this has not been borne out in subsequent trials. So in the DAPA-CKD trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2020, there was no statistically significant difference in uh, severe adverse events between those on dipagliflozin versus placebo. In particular, there was no signal for increased risk of amputation, diabetic ketoacidosis, or fourniers. So I think, you know, this initial 
a slew of things that we were counseling patients against maybe it doesn't have as strong of a signal as we initially thought. I still think that at least on my end, we're practicing with a little bit of caution in how we're counseling people. All right, so who are candidates for SGLT2 inhibitors? For patients that may benefit from SGLT2 inhibitors, first population we think about is patients um, with type 2 diabetes. The second population is actually anyone with CKD that is independent of diabetes, and that's for persons with GFRs between 25 and 60. And you also need to have some microalbuminuria in that with albumin creatinine ratio of over 30 milligrams per gram. And then the final population is anyone with established cardiovascular diseases like coronary artery disease, heart failure, or a history of stroke. People that are excluded from inhibitors is kind of those fears that we talked about earlier. So people with a history of recurrent UTIs, chronic indwelling catheters, people that require intermittent self-catheterization, people that cannot maintain good genitourinary hygiene, and then finally, people that have significant peripheral vascular disease on exam. Yeah, and I think that some of these are going to be coming up into question over time um, as we get more experience. To be perfectly honest, I have not encountered these problems personally. Have you guys? No, but then I haven't also tried to start on any person in my clinic who has chronic UTIs either. So, Yeah. So Judy, you again get called about an EGFR decline by your patient's primary care doctor after starting an SGLT2 inhibitor. This is becoming a theme. How do we interpret the drop in GFR after initiating an SGLT2 inhibitor? So, you know, as we discussed before, there are several mechanisms that could contribute to this drop in GFR, but they're all physiologic. So it's kind of what we would expect from the mechanism of action of these medications. And so we often do see a GFR drop. We can sometimes see as much as a 10% eGFR decline, which is then followed by stabilization, or actually in my experience, actually sometimes a recovery of the GFR to previous levels. And so generally, I counsel my patients actually now that we probably will see a change in their creatinine with a GFR drop. And then a couple of weeks after, uh, two to four weeks after starting these medications, we should see their GFR start to head back to where it was. And so if I do see that initial drop and it's, you know, in the 10 to 20% range, I don't panic. I just try to stay the course and I'll check another set of labs and often their, their GFR has recovered. All right. Anything to add, Jake, before we wrap up this podcast? No, that was a great physiology refresher course for me. So it's always nice hearing how these drugs work, actually. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you learned something because it was great having you here with us today. So everybody else, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We're going to wrap up with summarizing our key points. Number one, diabetic nephropathy is usually a clinical diagnosis. Consider biopsy when the presentation deviates from classical findings. Two, attempt to aggressively treat modifiable risk factors like glycemic control, blood pressure, weight loss, and smoking cessation. Three. RAS inhibitors like our ACE inhibitors and our ARBs and our SGLT2 inhibitors are considered renoprotective agents through the preservation of glomerular hemodynamics. Four, in patients with albuminuric diabetic kidney disease, attempts to maximize and continue our ACE inhibitors, our ARBs, should be made 
while utilizing low potassium diets and potassium binders like our sodium zirconium cyclosilicate and our pterimer. And five, in select patient populations, SGLT2 inhibitors should be initiated and maximized. That's all I got. Anything else? I don't have anything else to add, except, you know, I'm really, really, I think most of us are really excited about, most of not all of us are pretty excited about the SGLT2 inhibitors. And I think the more experience we have with them, the more confident we'll become in using them. And eventually they'll just be like ACEs or ARBs. It really truly will be standard of care for a large segment of the patients that we see. Yeah, I still think we're going to see a lot of discontinuation with rises in creatinine, just like we do with our ACEs and ARBs. So that's going to be something that we're going to need to hold hands for our primary care colleagues. And we're happy to do that. All right. Jake, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Any last words? No, that was wonderful. I'm always happy to see both of you. And that was cool hearing the GFR part, because like to me, that's like, kind of reinforces that it's an expected consequence and like almost intended pathophysiology of the drug working. So it's really cool to see that. Absolutely. Judy, take us away with our legal disclaimer. Oh, wait, we did it already. We did it already. And if you want to hear it again, but we've, <laughs> we've done the legal disclaimer. We just need the, cl- All right. the credits, I think. So credits, thank you to Dashiell Klingsborn for editing, unless I decide to do it this time around, to Josh Strong for graphics, and of course, the University of Colorado Division of Renal Disease and Hypertension and the Denver VA for giving us our jobs. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. See you next time.